Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about Station Eleven, the 10-episode limited series that aired on HBO Max this past winter. And returning to the show is costume designer Helen Huang. Helen, welcome back to Below the Line. It's good to be back, Skid. Nice to see you again. Warning for listeners, today's conversation will contain spoilers. And on that note, Helen, for listeners who haven't seen the series but are sticking around despite that warning, <laughs> let's give them a sense of the scale and scope of this project. Well, Station Eleven is based on a book, um, but it basically starts out modern day and then um, it sort of jumps back in time um, in, in the form of like 20 years. Um, and the premise is there's a, is it okay to talk about the spoiler? Yes, we will. Uh, folks, this is your final, final warning. We are going to spoil it, but yes, Helen, go ahead. So it's sort of travels back in time. There was a huge pandemic, uh, flu that took out, uh, 90% or something like that of the world. And so it goes back, um, sort of these timelines of these characters and connects them through, uh, through a span of like 20 years before and post pandemic. Um, so it's kind of like post-apocalyptic, but it has, um, but it's sort of, it's very different than usually the post-apocalyptic usual um, aesthetic. And so, um, so I, you know, it's, it's one of those things that where it's very, I think the show is like very human about sort of how this could happen and how people exist and before and after. Well, and, and I think also a note, and this I think will apply to costumes as well, in the future, society has splintered into smaller groups. Yeah. And each of these groups has their own sort of vibe, if you will, that uh, it's not just a uh, one sort of post-apocalyptic look. There's all of that. And we visit these various groups with a traveling theater company. Yes. So you have another layer of costumes because yeah. they wear stage costumes specifically, yeah. but yeah. also informed by this uh, post-pandemic, post-apocalyptic world, so. We had a long prep to really determine like how the different segments sort of should look like. You know, when I read the script, I also, I always wanted to do sort of an apocalyptic kind of uh, show, but I always thought like with a lot of post-apocalyptic shows, it was just like very gray. And it was like this lack, like real lack of resources and, you know, it's usually a desert. <laughs> it's like brown or gray and people don't really have an aesthetic. And I really wanted to do it um, based off their script. It was like written that post pandemic, it was like really lush and sort of beautiful. And so I really wanted to do it as sort of like a memory um, to what we've lost, you know, and sort of like a celebration of people's ability because I feel like that is the starting point because I feel like people don't lose that, you know, even through traumatic events, um, it's sort of how we cope with things, you know? And if you really look at like how we dealt with our own pandemic, it's like when we were in lockdown, people started baking, they made things, you know, there was a lot of craft involved. And I felt like that was more true to how humans sort of can rebuild um, a society. Um, so, so in the concept concept um, part of it, conceptual part of it, I really thought the post-apocalyptic world should be colorful and vibrant and bright. And then sort of like the 
the uh, modern world should be sort of reflective of like controlled so reflective of like concrete and you know and we were in Chicago when we were filming the first part of it the um the pandemic part of it the present day part of it and so you know I noticed it was a lot of black in Chicago and so actually the present was very sort of devoid of color and then the the future was very colorful and then you know obviously with the theater costumes we thought a lot I mean I thought a lot about like how people could be creative and sort of make like non-traditional more art-based and non sort of like Eurocentric costumes and then for the different societies in the future, we really thought about, you know, along with the production designer and the creator and the directors, we really thought about like what these societies had access to, if they were nomadic, if they were sort of, you know, afraid of scavenging or going out beyond, you know, their certain sort of tribal groups. Um, and so that really informed how we decided, you know, what aesthetic to put where. Now, that's interesting, both uh, how you've characterized the present day and, mm-hmm. again, these various groups. When you talk about working with the cre- other creative people on the project, did you guys get together and brainstorm this look or was some of this written out? You know, the, the script wasn't entirely like too descriptive, but Patrick Somerville, he, um, the creator, he really trusted his department heads and sort of picked us because of our vision and version of this world. Um, Ruth Holman is a production designer and her and I looked over, you know, a lot of reference pictures um, and we sort of informed each other, you know, with sort of the play costumes with Lear, she had, you know, I was looking at her, some of her references of how she wanted to do the stage and it was like very bare with the sort of fake snow and this like very huge sky like projected up like in the back of it. And I was thinking, oh, that's such a great sort of idea to make this Lear like purposely like very design sort of like really tightly controlled. And so like if you watch the first performance of the Lear costumes, they were extremely pared back they were theater costumes, you know, in the traditional idea of theater costumes, but like, uh, but as a concept, it was a very tight sort of concept that worked with the background. And then when we got into the future, that's when I decided that it was a more creative expression. And there is a lack of control with the traveling symphony of what they could get their hands on, how they could construct something. There are lots of limitations. And so to sort of like work the costumes to where they appear organic, um, sometimes trash-like to juxtapose sort of like the the initial Lear costumes. And so the costumes represent sort of how society has changed in terms of not only their physical space, but their mental space. There's a staging of Kingler in the present day, but you're right, it's sparse but controlled. And then when they're doing King Lear and then Hamlet later, um, yeah. it's wild, but also extremely elaborate. Yeah. And, you know, we, we really just looked at a lot of pictures, non-traditional costumes, costumes from around the world um, to really sort of like look at, you know, how people express themselves differently. Like we looked at... Um, Phyllis Galembo and Charles Frager and um, like they took take pictures of sort of masquerades and religious rituals around the world and sort of it gave a perspective of like what non-western costumes like looked like and then we looked at a lot of sort of art references and and then um, try to 
combine everything together. We had a whole workroom dedicated to sort of experimenting sort of on these costumes and I try to work on them in a very sort of organic process. But also, you know, when we did the costumes, we were all up in Canada and Canada was on lockdown at that point. And so like, we didn't have access to a lot except these like warehouses where there's like these barrels of like thrifted clothes. And so like, it was actually kind of life imitating art because we were just like, going through like <laughs> and, and you know my aging and dying team also like dumpster dived and they took you know they took like trash and made it beautiful like if you look at a lot of the costumes you know people don't understand sometimes how much detail goes into it you know the play costumes I mean they're made out of plastic you know tarp uh, Gertrude's whole headpiece was made out of foam and um, spools from thread and then repainted so yeah, it, there was a lot of sort of details to, to sort of like sort of deconstruct what these traditional characters are. And then we also, you know, even day to day for the Traveling Symphony, we rebuilt a lot of vintage costumes for them so they could wear it throughout the film. Um, like um, Kirsten's opening Speedo top um, that she wears, we rebuilt that from exactly to um, of an old Speedo you know, that we had found and we reprinted everything because like, for me, it was like, I don't understand why post-apocalyptic worlds like A, don't have graphics and B, don't have logos. Because (laughs) if if you, if you think about it, like this world is full of logos and graphics. And like, if you were scavenging in the future for clothes, that's what you would have. Like, I don't understand. And I think that's one of the charms of it. It's like these logos that used to mean something like a Nike or Speedo, they don't mean anything in the future. So when people wear them, it's kind, it, it is a memory of the past that ha- holds no sort of weight in the future. And I, I really like that element of it. And I was glad uh, the creator let us sort of explore that, you know. Now talk to me about some of this split we discussed where there's different societies, they have different motivations or like nomad versus uh, lockdown in one area and how that affects their costuming choices. Well, the Traveling Symphony was like the core. And so we started with them first. And um, we just really thought like who would join the Traveling Symphony, right? And so it's like people who are creative, who have an inclination toward creativity. And so we try to make their costumes as vibrant and as sort of like, not cohesive, but sort of they wear things that they sort of really like, you know? And then we also had this idea of like, they're scavengers, like people, like what kind of clothes would they like bring back? And we try to make it so the clothes that they bring back are like more emotional than a lot of the clothes in the other areas, you know? And especially with like characters like Alex, who was like a baby and was like born after the pandemic, like what she would sort of want on her body because she doesn't have stores telling her like what to to wear or like Instagram being like, this is popular. And so, the idea for her was like, maybe she just likes, you know, things that are cheap and frilly because that makes her happy. And that's what she like wears. And also in the traveling symphony, we tried to make it as gender fluid as possible. And, you know, all the male actors were like, man, dresses are amazing. They're so, <laughs> they're so comfortable. And it's like, it's, it's true, but we tried to sort of like um, take all the lines. And so, you know, with all the, a lot of the male actors, they were all wearing skirts and dresses and things like that. At first, you know, um, the first round of costuming was like, we were doing it almost like it was tunic. So they were wearing skirts and dresses and then pants underneath. And I was like, no, you know, if we're going to do this, we should just do this fully. And so there was a lot of sort of gender line blurring. And then when you go out from the traveling symphony, 
even like the airport and things like that, those type of civilizations, it's like they're more insular. And so we were, and then also they're more, um, for, for the Air Force, I actually pitched, they should be like a 1990s Gap ad because they're sort of communal, but they're a very structured society. And so we decided to sort of pare back on all the colors, except for the two leaders of the airport um, and make them more ornate, almost like, you know, like Greek or Roman senators, but everyone else like extremely pared back. The color was pared back and more utilitarian and not so expressive, but we tried to delineate that way because I feel like, you know, it visually says something right off the bat emotionally, um, but also it, it really is sometimes like if you look at more conservative places versus more expressive places, even in the United States, that's how people sort of like think about dressing. And that's one of the best things about the series is like you really get to think about like why people end up looking aesthetically the way they do. And so there's a group of kids that have gone almost feral on their own. <laughs> yeah. But they all need to be costumed as well. And it can't look cartoonish, right? Or we're going to lose the, if it's two lost boys, we're going to fall out of the world. Talk to me about getting those guys ready. So again, like we reference a lot of like masquerade books to look at like textures and our aging and dying team, they were amazing. They were like, um, they were true craftsmen. And so I would show them like just kind of reference pictures. And then at the end of the day, they would have something magical like made for me. And so with the kids, it's like, you know, what's really funny about the Lost Boys reference? I actually looked at like Pan and things like that to see like why they look like Lost Boys and then try to, to make it so they don't look like Lost Boys. <laughs> and so it was really trying to be pretty restrained in who gets what decoration and having it be like they do make things kind of like the traveling symphony in terms of creating art. They make things according to this mythology that they are sort of following, but to have it not so they're decorated head to toe with this idea. And it did go through many iterations, like what was too much, how to bring it back. Um, and it was always this sort of like push and pull. But a lot of times, you know, with that kind of stuff, it's like the aging is very important. And so, you know, whether something looks like they've been in the weather, if they've been sun damaged, really add to sort of the realism of it, you know, because if you just like made something too perfect to put on someone, it's never going to look very real because environmental factors really affect the clothes, you know? So, but they were really fun because uh, we got to, we had a long prep. So experimenting a lot on them going through like many different iterations. Now when we're talking about the kids and their mythology. Once again, for folks who don't know, it's based on this graphic novel and it occurs to me in the graphic novel, there is a spaceman, yeah. But then there's also a space suit that has to be part of the filming for a while. Does it start with the novel and then you design the suit to match or did you design the suit and then they put it into the novel? No, actually what happened was we had to shoot the spaceman first. And so they couldn't find a graphic artist in the beginning that could do it. And so we, but the suit had to go on screen. And so we designed the suit and then they designed the graphic novel around the suit. And they sort of designed the sets based on the aesthetics of the suit. And we, I drew like so many versions of space. <laughs> looked at so many different actual like space costumes, um, like costumes and also, you know, sort of practical astronaut costumes from the 70s and 60s. And, you know, I had an illustrator that really like sort of like worked on it with us. But it was, it was hard because it had to look not real. 
you know? Um, and so we picked a very unreal color and, you know, the director here, Murai and Patrick, who's the creator, they both wanted to look kind of like a janitor, like on a space station. So nothing heroic, intensely human without a human face. So it was like very hard to do. And then, you know, when we had the company make the costume, like they were like, oh, it's a mascot. And I think that's the best way to think about it because it's not really a space costume. It's more like a character um, design. I do have to say though, it was not comfortable for anybody that was inside that space. (laughs) (laughs) But it turned out really, really well. You you know, and also like, it it was very interesting to develop a costume like that because I haven't made a costume like that before. Um, and sort of like how you would design something and how it would be practically made is like a really hard lesson because you could draw something, but it might not allow the actor like movement. And like on big movies like Marvel and stuff, they could, you know, CG it in. So that's why they have all the movement. But on something like this, it actually had to be super practical. And so like we actually had to sort of, the actor had a limited range of movement because of, how it was like designed so that was a very interesting uh process and something that was very valuable to me well it came together really well where you do get a sense of an element of the graphic novel come to life but not feel cgi'd or sort of animated in that space like it's still part of the real space but has that sort of element of the graphic novel still there and so even if it went you know backwards in the design i think it really ties together um and then also you know when we're drawing with the proportions it was like everyone you know including the people who are making were trying to make the proportions more normal and i was like no it's like a drawing you can't make the proportions like more normal it has to look like very odd because it's like a drawing you know with so many costumes to choose from, talk to me about some of the favorites, uh, whether it was the idea that was uh, captured you or just the challenge. What were some of your favorite costumes of the, of the series? Um, I know we didn't get a good look at them, but sort of like the first Lear series, the Lear when they were doing pre-pandemic, the first play, that was sort of really favorite. I've, you know, like doing sort of European costumes, but really paired back and really looking at the materials that was very fun to design young Kirsten costume was really fun to to design the pink dress with all the stuff worn over it I, I mean I love that costume so much and then um you know when we go into the future I love all of Alice costumes and then also you know Kirsten's I really love that swimsuit that we made for her I just thought it was like so practical and so unique But in terms of like the traveling symphony play costumes, you know, obviously Hamlet is a big favorite. There is a costume that didn't end up in the movie, which is when like in the future, they were supposed to do another Lear rendition. It was actually a costume that I built based on a Peking opera costume. And my grandfather loved Peking opera and I really wanted to like introduce it into American audiences so they could see because they're extraordinary costumes, but it did not make it. So that was kind of sad um, <laughs> but Kirsten's costumes like Gertrude's costume was amazing um I mean it, it was just like they're like babies it's like really hard to to tell you know what and there's so many costumes that you can't even see well on camera um that were amazing I mean that ghost costume with the um the paper mache head that <laughs> came out so successfully we actually took apart like five or seven like wedding dresses to make that costume and it's it's just things like that that makes the show special because i'll be like 
So, you know, Hamlet's father, the ghost, I think I want to put him in a wedding dress. And they're like, yeah, go ahead. (laughs) And I guess it's also that play with like, what's feminine, what's exhibits power in a play, you know? And so I, that it was just, it was kind of just like miraculous to get to do that every day. So Helen, this sounds like it was a really unique opportunity for you. When I read the script, I knew I wanted to be a part of it because it was like one of the best two episodes because they send you two episodes in the beginning that I've ever read. And then when I went into the interview, I knew more that I wanted to do it because they had such a unique view of it in terms of like the color and sort of like the humor that goes into dressing. And then also during the process, I realized that it's so amazing to have a creator that really, you know, and just like a whole producing team and all the directors who really, you know, trust your vision. And every time I go, hey, I have something strange to show you, they don't back away or they're not afraid of it. Because, you know, um, I think people don't understand that, like what ends up on screen isn't everything that a designer wants. It's filtered through approvals by directors and producers. And like sometimes they could, depending on their aesthetic, they could be afraid that an audience won't understand something if it's like too strange. And I feel like with with these group of collaborators and producers and directors, they really trust the audience to like understand visually something that's a little bit more strange and and uh, imaginative and disconnected from them. And I felt like that was one of the most amazing part of this project, you know. Well, it's one of my favorite shows of both 2021 and 2022 so far. It's a great seeing you again. It's so great seeing you. Listeners, I love your feedback. You'll find my contact info on our website, belowtheline1word.biz. That's B-I-Z. You'll also find past episodes and links to all of our social media, so check it out. Helen, what else have you been working on? Um, I've been working on a series uh, called Beef that I'm very excited about. It stars Ali Wong and Stephen Yoon, and it's like a dark, dark comedy. It's like an all-Asian cast, and I feel like it is one of those shows that's very rare on TV, and it's Netflix, and it should be coming out later on this year, um, but I am very excited about it just because the content of it is something that I've never seen before. Well, I'm looking forward to it, and Helen, plan on coming back. <laughs> My shout-outs are to the regular bunch. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music, John Wan for our logo, and all our listeners, I appreciate you. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. Thanks again from Below the Line.